Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O'Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. All right, welcome black. Welcome black. Black as always. Black as ever. Um, black like I never left. Once again, it's episode, another amazing episode of Black Arm of the Law. I'm your host, the one and only Carl M.F. and Payne. <laughs> Today, <laughs> today's guest is none other than Mr. Vaughn McCoy. I'm going to jump right into it. So uh, tell me a little bit about where you're from. Well, I'm from Patterson, New Jersey, uh, born and raised there. And Patterson is is known, I guess, for a number of things, not the least of which is the uh, movie Lean on Me with Joe Clark, uh, where I attended Eastside High School from 1982 to 1986. And he was my principal for four years. So I got a whole bunch of Joe Clark stories I could share. Uh, he just died a few months ago and uh, I was asked to um, say a few words on his behalf from a few news outlets, but just a wonderful guy. But born and raised in Paris, the youngest of six kids, uh, first in my family car to go to college, to go to law school, to become a professional. Uh, had had some challenges as a young man. Uh, I was a teen father. I fathered my first kid when I was 16 years old. And so I had to overcome those challenges to uh, be successful and do things that would put me in a different track so that as I raised my young daughter at the time, and then subsequently met my wife years later. We had two more kids together. So we have a blended family. Um, I am uh, 52 years old. Uh, I've been a professional uh, as a lawyer, uh, as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, and obviously uh, relevant to this podcast, uh, I was in law enforcement on the prosecutorial side for two different stints. I was a former assistant United States attorney where I was a federal prosecutor in New Jersey for about three years. And then I was the head of the criminal division for the attorney general's office in New Jersey from 2002 to 2006. So about eight years total in law enforcement, working with, you know, law enforcement, federal and state agencies and prosecuting cases throughout the state of New Jersey. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I'm going to go back a little bit on you because, you know, okay. I mean, we come from the same era. So so we're going uh, <laughs> to relate to a lot of things together. Sure. All right. So you said... You talked about Joe Clark. Yes, sir. Was what? How close was the movie to the man? And that that you know, in your experience, a lot of the events that the movie was based upon really happened. Now, Hollywood obviously dramatized a lot of the events, but the underpinning or the underlying facts, you know, really did happen. And mm -hmm. he did do a lot of the things that were in the movie, and. When I'm asked that question, did he suspend a whole lot of people at one time? Yes, he did. You know, to try. Did he chain the doors? Yes, he did. Uh, <laughs> did he discipline, you know, teachers in front of students? Yes, he did. So he was an equal opportunity offender 
whether you were a student, whether you were a parent, whether you were a teacher or administrator, if you didn't do something that he thought was the right thing to do, he would he would embarrass you. And a lot of teachers hated that. Um, right. Some some respected it, but a lot of people hated it because they didn't like being called out in front of students and their colleagues. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a Joe Clark in charge? Well, you know, I often say that my wife's an educator. She's been in education, you know, for 25 years and people like him aren't around anymore. And I don't even know if he could survive today, given the environment that we're in in education and in the world and in society. His methods were cutting edge in 1982 in terms of what he was doing and how he was doing it. But he realized that he really had to be tough, you know, particularly on us as African-American, Latino men and women, because no one else was going to take it easy on us when we left Eastside High School, when we left Patterson. And so he was all about tough love and preparing us for the challenges ahead and really inspiring us to want to live at a higher level. I think I think we could survive it, especially after this last one. I mean, you know, he had a little bit of jo- uh, a, a biased Joe Clark in him. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? I, but you know, which which kind of set the pathway. You know, I think I think it's, I think it's I think we could definitely survive. He could survive it. You know, yeah, I think it's time yeah. for someone who 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 is an equal opportunity offender. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, give you a spanking when you do it wrong. Like, yeah, know, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not mad at that guy. Somebody's no, and upset. I. Yeah, you know? a lot of us, yeah, we respected him and and we loved him for who he was and for what he did for us and what he did for me. I wrote a book uh, about seven years ago called Playing Up, One Man's Rise from Public Housing to Public Service Through Mentorship and just kind of telling my story of growing up in Patterson and kind of overcoming some of the challenges I had overcome. And he wrote the foreword for my book. Nice. And I, I, I reached out to him and... I kept in contact with him over the years after he left Eastside. He he went to be the executive director of a juvenile detention facility in Essex County, and he basically whipped that facility into shape. I think he went on to do some other things, but we kept in contact over the years, and then he retired down in Gainesville, Florida, and I reached out to him and asked him if he would write the foreword from my book, and he did. I sent him a copy of the manuscript Thanks. because I have a whole – chapter in the book dedicated to Eastside and my high school years. And he was a big part of that because I was a part of his first graduating class. Did he ever give you uh, any you know, advice uh, personally um, that you may have applied to your life? Yes. I wouldn't say individually, but collectively as students um, at Eastside High School at the time, he always gave us advice and, you know, really challenged us and me to uh, really aspire to be something better and to be great and not be satisfied with, you know, the situation and the current conditions that I was living in at the time. Right. And he did that through a number of things. He, he was a big sports fan. As you know, his daughters are Hall of Fame or, or, or Olympic athletes. And so he participated and came to all the sports events. And I was a three sport athlete. I played football, basketball, baseball. And he was always there inspiring, you know, athletes to push through and to be the best we can be and use our athletic gifts and talents to get a scholarship to college. And that's what I did. I was good at playing sports and I was able to get a full scholarship to Rutgers University to play football. And that kind of set me on a different trajectory than a lot of people that I saw in the community. 
Nice. 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 So let me ask you this. So you said you started, uh, you know, young, um, and, and you, you had a kid, uh, a child at a very young age. How did that, how did that affect you at that time? And was that part of the, the thing that set you on a different path or was there a different event in your life that kind of, uh, led you down the pathway to law enforcement? It certainly set me on a different path because I didn't call want to be like some of the people that I saw who fathered children and didn't take care of their children. Some of those people lived in my own household, older brothers, and my mother struggled through various relationships and my father died when I was 12. And when he died, he didn't live with us. He lived in Passaic, New Jersey. So I was hoping to change the paradigm of what I saw in my own family and in my community. And the birth of this child focused me in a way that I'm not sure I would have been focused, but for that experience. And so I was able to continue my education because her grandfather told me that he would help to support the baby while I was in college and that I had a chance to do what a lot of people in Patterson couldn't do and didn't do, which was to get a full education for free using my athletic talent. And so he kind of freed me up a little bit to pursue athletics, to pursue academics at a time in my life where I was struggling with whether I needed to go to college or whether I needed to get a job to support this young kid. And he, he helped me work through that and said, you'll have the rest of your life to take care of this kid. You have a chance to do something now. So why don't you take this opportunity to do it and we'll support you and we'll help you. So that freed me up to, to pursue my dream of becoming a college football player and gave me the foundation of the academic underpinning that I need in order to graduate college, go to law school. And when I did that, I was able to meet various mentors and influences along the way who helped me to develop to the person that I am today. And it also goes back to high school where in my high school yearbook call, I wrote that my career goal was to be a lawyer. Now this is 1984, 1985. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I go back to my yearbook and it says career goal, lawyer. And so I always had in my mind, even growing up, that I could do this thing. And I was inspired by my fourth grade teacher, uh, Miss Juanita Jones in Patterson Public School number 10. And she would always say, Vaughn, you make a good lawyer. And I said, why, Mrs. Jones? She said, because you talk too much. And so that stuck with me. <laughs> that stuck with me for a very long time. And so I just really had this lawyer thing in my head. And then, as you know, because we come from the same school. Around 1985, 1986, there was a show that came out called L.A. Law. And that show featured you know, Jonathan Rollins, this Harvard-trained lawyer who was working at this big law firm in Los Angeles. 
you know, played by Blair Underwood. And I'm watching that and I'm like, wow, you know, this is this is really impressive. So I got inspired by that whole L.A. law concept and and decided that I really wanted to pursue this career in law. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what was your favorite uh, law enforcement show back in the day? Yeah, well, that was it. I mean, that was one that came out that was about lawyers, probably like the first lawyer show other than like, you know, Perry Mason, which was way before me and Matlock. But but one that really featured an African-American lawyer, it was, you know, L.A. law. That's why I think it's so important. And I'm, I'm a huge advocate of of, you know, the types of images that we put out there and the types of images and, and you know, whether it's through music, television or film, you know, because like you said, this inspired you. This inspired you to want to, you know, because you saw something and said, well, man, he looks like me. And, and if he can do it, so can I, even if it was just on television, on television, of course. Right. Right. And that's the power of television. You know, that's the power that these, you know, and, and, and you know, a lot of those powers that be, they know that. Which is why for years and years, they never wanted to show us in a positive or favorable light, Mm -hmm. you know, and and suppressed a lot of these images, even though this was actually happening. Right. Because we did have lawyers, I mean, and doctors. And I had a lot of friends in D.C. whose parents were very successful. Correct. You know, and, and so when the Cosby show came on. I was like, no, this is real. This is actually happening. It's just that you never see it. Correct. And so say what you want about, you know, Bill Cosby, you know, in terms of, you know, his legacy. He he created something that, you know, and then started a movement. I mean, he taught a lot of people about what HBCUs were. Correct. You know, and he inspired a whole generation of, of, of people and kids to want to go to college and want to become and better themselves. So. I applaud you on that and, and, and just I applaud, you know, Mr. Cosby for setting that road. I applaud a lot of of, of actors, black actors who knocked down doors, Sidney Porty, a lot of them who knocked down doors before us and uh, Richard Roundtree, you know, to, yeah, to show, us, show, us, show these show us in these positive images on television. Correct. You know, Pave the way. Sure. Sure. If you will. Yeah. So. So. But what I want to know is because a lot of times when I talk to people who, who, you know, join law enforcement in one area or another, they, it's something, there's always a particular event. There's always something that either happened to them or someone else. I mean, and I understand part of what you're saying with regards to wanting to change your own situation, but that doesn't mean that, that you would take this path. Correct. Does it make sense what I'm saying? So, I do. so what I'm trying to find out from you is, was there something that sparked that, 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 that lit the fire in you to say, you know, this is what I want to do and this is why I want to do this? Yeah. So I think I can trace it back to an experience I had as an eighth grader in middle school where I was arrested or at least taken into custody by the police in connection with a burglary of a pocketbook from a elderly woman. And I had nothing to do with it, but I knew who had everything to do with it. And I was in the area where 
the burglary took place. And I'm 12 or 13 years old, and these two police officers uh, put me into the back of a car with another gentleman, and they asked us questions, and I told them I really didn't do it. I didn't really know anything about it. And so they proceeded to question me, and then one of the police officers took out a stun gun or some sort of a taser, and he started to poke me with it. And I was shocked, obviously. I didn't really know. I'd never seen one of those things before. And so the other gentleman that I was with had a record and they obviously knew him and he had just gotten out of a juvenile facility and he didn't want to go back. And so he started to talk and he told the police who did it. And we went around the corner and the police searched a garage area and found the woman's pocketbook and they arrested, I think, two other people in connection with that. They brought us down to the station. Uh, they called my mother and it was the first day that my mother went to work on the 3 to 11 shift. And she always avoided the 3 to 11 shift because she wanted to be home when we got home from school. And so the first day she goes to 3 to 11 shift, I get picked up by the police. So she's like, that's why I don't want to work 3 to 11. I want to work 7 to 3. <laughs> so uh, so that experience, that was my first real, you know, experience or encounter with the police, which obviously wasn't a positive one, but I'm sure others have experienced much worse. Then when I was a college student, I came home on break one time and I lived in this huge apartment building and, you know, as you know, people hang around and congregate in front of their apartment building. And the police pulled up one that's, day that's while the, I was- That's the way of life in the hood, man. That's like- It's the way it is. So we're all congregating, you know, 10, 15 people, everybody's out there. And I'm a college student and people know that I'm in college and you know how it is. Carl, when people in the neighborhood look up to you and respect you because you're doing something different and they want to do everything to protect you because they don't want you to be like them. Right. So I'm sitting <laughs> out there in my in my back in the day, you know, I had the Washington Redskins back then starter jacket. You know, I have my hat on and everything. And the cops pull up on the curb. They pull the car up on the curb and they come straight for me. And, you know, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then and then he's like holding in his waist. He said, go ahead and run. Go ahead and run. I'm like, where am I going? Everybody's like, you know, why are you doing that? You know, Vaughn ain't doing nothing. He's going to college. He's doing this. He's doing that. And, you know, they began to search me and pat me down. They said, well, somebody reported that you were out here selling drugs. No, he ain't selling wait, no wait, drugs. Somebody reported you specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess because they came right to me, right? They came right to me. And I'm like, nah, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not out here selling. So they they pat me down, they searched, and they said, you know, somebody reported that you were out here selling drugs. Now, I I later found out who it was. It was somebody, you know, from the neighborhood who was trying to save himself and reported to the police that I was the one, you know, who was selling drugs. Wasn't Why true. Are you? I don't know. 
I, I, I have no idea. You <laughs> I have no idea. Tell so again, you're slanging on low. You were slanging yeah, on yeah, low. No, Carl, no, no. <laughs> no. You're done now. You can tell the truth. No, no. The, the statute of limitations has run, right? I don't have to worry about it no more. No, but it wasn't true. And, and so that was my, my second experience, you know, with, with law enforcement. And so those two combined, I think, made me think about what I could do. And then I think the last component of it was as I watched television shows, as I read the newspapers, I figured out, Carl, that the prosecutor is the man or woman with the power. As good of a defense attorney as you can be, the, the prosecutor is the person who really determines your fate in a lot of different ways. Even though, be- even though the law says you're, the law says you're innocent. Yes. Until proven guilty. So right. realistically, that, that would seem as if the prosecutor has the, the harder job. I would say that's true in many instances. And the way I approach my job as the prosecutor I always approach my job as to protect the rights of the accused because I don't want to be known or I didn't want to be known as a prosecutor who cut corners. I wanted to be fair to every defendant that was put before me. And I always say or always said, I I just facilitate the process. I don't and I didn't um, force anybody to do anything. But if you found yourself in a situation where you were arrested by the police and you were indicted, you were charged with a crime and I found your file in front of my desk, I'd be the first to say, if I didn't think that this case was worth bringing and that I couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, then I would make that known to whatever law enforcement agency I was working with at the time. And I have letters, Carl, in my file from defendants who thanked me for treating them with dignity and respect as they went through the process. Now, and, now let me ask you this. It's, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to. I was just going to say that's interesting because. So so what makes so what makes a person do the opposite? Even even if they know that, even if they feel that, right? Even if they know, okay, this this doesn't have a lot of weight here. It doesn't hold water. You know, and realistically, I don't think we can. Right. Aside from whatever facts may have been misstrewed or, or, you know, fudged or lacked, you know, what makes the prosecutor go and do it anyway? Well, prosecutors are human beings, Carl. And as with other human beings, their judgment calls that need to be made all the time. And. Because of my personal experiences growing up the way I did and all of the experiences I've had, I had a perspective that's different than somebody else's perspective. You know, there, there are shades of gray with me because of my own experiences. But you take somebody else who grew up in a different environment, who didn't have the shades of gray, who really don't understand, as we call it, street knowledge and street smarts and how things are done and how things play out, we can look at the same set of facts, Carl, and come to a very different conclusion. 
because we're because we're human beings, right? So we, we we see things through the lens, and so that's why when I got hired as a prosecutor, one of the things that the people who interviewed me wanted to make sure was that I had perspective. You know that I wasn't just someone who saw the world as black and white because it's not. It's it's just not. There there's shades of gray in there, and unless you understand those perspectives. It's very difficult to sit in judgment um, of other people when your experiences and your wisdom and your life kind of suggest something different. And so I find some of the best prosecutors that I know are the ones who have a worldview and a in a in a balanced life that existed before they became prosecutors. And I would agree with that. I would agree with that part of what you said. But a lot of the times, you know, when you're caught up in the, in the, you know, in the system or you're going through it or just in general, you know, judge, judging based on what we see on TV every day, there doesn't seem any gray area. It really is black or white, white. or black and white or just white. You know, it yeah. doesn't seem as if there's any gray areas at all. Yeah. And that's 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 unfortunate. And, you know, so, you know, one of the questions uh, uh, I'm going to put to you is, you know, how would you change that? How do we change that? How do we change that pers- perspective or, you know, even the playing field, if you will? Well, I think it happens long before people become prosecutors or go into law enforcement. And folks need to be exposed to other people and have what I would call cultural diversity way before they get in the position of power. Because once you get in a position of power without that, it's it's kind of too late at that point. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that, you know, we, we do, we did in Patterson, I went back to Patterson a few years ago with the new mayor and I became the chief operating officer of the city. So I kind of oversaw the, the police department. And one of the things that we made sure that new recruits did was to take, you know, sensitivity training and work with people in the community to understand the community before you become a police officer in the community. That's great. That's awesome. And and many times what happens is that you recruit people who are not from the community. So they don't know it. They don't understand it. And so we want to make sure that these recruits, you know, get into the community and the sensitivity training is taught by a group of pastors and community leaders to sensitize the folks to what's happening and the people that you're going to be dealing with in the community before you encounter them in a hostile situation. And so that's crucial. And that should be done in the academy when they go for their training. That should be done, you know, in some sort of immersion process when they come on the job. And then we just have to do a better job, I think, even in segregated, you know, middle schools and high schools and colleges where, there's not enough interaction based upon geography or social status of different groups kind of interacting with each other. Because, you know, in New Jersey, you know, if you're a white kid, you can go your whole elementary, middle school, high school career without interacting with a black person, just based upon where you live and where you go to school. And all the images that you talked about on television is all you see And so you think every black person is like somebody on one of these shows, and that's just not true. 
Well, also, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's deeper than that. I mean, it, it's been ingrained that, you know, just hearing the word black. Yeah. Well, you know, what images come to mind, mm-hmm. you know, because it's always associated with something negative, you know, whether you hear black, you know, you know, Black Friday, you know, black, you know, black market, you know, right, right. <laughs> it is, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's always associated with something negative, negative, uh, uh, you know, anything dark, even the word dark, dark, as, you know, as you know, so so it's been ingrained long, long before that. But um, you, you touched on something uh, I wanted to go back to briefly. Um, I think that, you know, listening to you, I think that's probably what happened right because if those officers who approached you were actually of that neighborhood they would have already known about you Mm -hmm. they would have already known who you were and been like yeah nah that's not happening that's not happening right (laughs) you know what i'm saying like that's that's the problem right there so how do we how do we put this in effect you know how can we make this become official in terms of like what are the steps that people can take to say okay so that this these requirements, this this vetting process, this uh, preparedness process, you know, preparing people, uh, officers and whatnot. How do we make it so that it is curriculum, so that it's part of the, the course now? So a couple of things. One, I think that more people from the community should desire to become law enforcement. I think that would help tremendously. I can tell you from personal experience, we've had a difficult time in Patterson trying to convince young men and women from the community to become law enforcement officers. And I think part of that is because of what they see and the negative stereotypes that exist, and they don't want to be a part of that. So we have a better success rate convincing people to become firefighters than we do police officers. Mm. And so the firefighters are much more easy to recruit than the police officers. So getting young men and young women who know the community, who are from the community, so that when there's a hostile situation and they're going back to the community in which they grew up, it, it, it helps to de-escalate the situation very, very quickly. I know because you have respect in the community for each other. Exactly. Even, even uh, you know, you, you might know a young man or a woman and, you know, their situation. So, you know, you'll handle that differently as well. Exactly. As, as well as the young man or young woman respects you because of how you treat them. Correct. Um, you know, Correct. And, and it's it's that mutual respect situation versus, you know, I'm above it all or you know, the God complex that exists and so forth and so on. So, you know, so so we got to recruit. We got to do a better job of recruiting people from the neighborhood and making it um, attractive for them to join the police department. Part of that is pay. I mean, you know, a starting police officer salary in a city like Patterson is thirty two thousand dollars. That's not a lot of money, as you know, Carl. So to get people to sign up for all of that for 32,000 in the beginning is is very difficult. So I think attracting better people means you need to increase the pay a little bit. 
uh, to make sure that people. And that's what I was going to say. You know, you guys, you guys need a, a better marketing, you know, plan. Just, you know, yeah, got to yeah. those come back to Jamaica commercials. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's yeah, uh, it's make it sexy. So somebody be like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm about to be a Patterson police police officer. officer. Well, you yeah. know, it's funny because my my oldest daughter, the one who was born when I was 16 years old, her first job after college was a Patterson police officer. So she actually went back to the community. She became a police officer. She she got laid off because of budgetary reasons, but then she stayed in law enforcement. So she's a 10, 12 year veteran now in law enforcement. She works in the county prosecutor's office investigating homicide cases. So not only was I in law enforcement, I have a daughter who is now you know in law enforcement who really is on the front line, if you will, in investigating homicide cases, you know, for the county and the area that it covers. So I see and live this just about every day. And I'm concerned for her, obviously, um, and her well-being because of, you know, who she is. But she's she's really made a way and she's in it for the long haul. She loves her job. She loves what she does. And she had her own experience with law enforcement that I believe inspired her to become what she is today. And I don't think she would mind me sharing this story, but but you talk about an inspiration, you know, this kid's an inspiration because she was sexually assaulted when she was probably 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And terrible experience right before she was getting ready to go to college. And it was devastating for the whole family. But she went through the process. She went to counseling. She did everything she needed to do in order to get her life together and to get it back on track the best you can after an experience like that. The guys get caught, two of them, and they get convicted. They go to trial. They get sentenced to prison for kidnapping, aggravated assault, aggravated sexual assault. So they probably will never see the light of day again. Mm hmm. So what this kid does is she graduates college, she goes into law enforcement because she wants to help people who experience what she experienced. And so she wound up working for the very same prosecutor's office and the very same people who prosecuted her case when she was sexually assaulted. And she started out and the sexual assault unit and the domestic violence unit working with victims of violent crimes, including sexual assaults, because she related to their experience. And as a result of that, you know, she felt compelled and called to kind of do what she's doing. So that's another law enforcement story in terms of there are good people out there whose hearts are in the right places who, because of personal experiences, decided that I want to be in the system to help change it. And because of her own personal situation that she experienced, she decided that she was going to do something about it in the way that she could by getting involved in law enforcement. Let me ask you this. So during your time, you know, your role as either assistant U.S. attorney, uh, did you you ever witness any prosecutorial discrimination of non-white offenders? And if so, did you address it, the situation yourself or 
or what the count, you know, you know what I'm saying? How did you handle that? Basically, was there any disparities that you may have witnessed between white offenders and non-white offenders? Um, disparity in the sense of the numbers, yes. There was certainly more African-American and Latino defendants than white defendants. That was that was clear in terms of the the number of people we saw on an annual basis, even though, as you know, African-Americans and Latinos are just a fraction of the total population, we certainly saw more defendants of color than we saw white defendants, particularly when it came to what we call street crimes. Some of the more sophisticated crimes, you probably saw more affluent or I would say white defendants. A lot of the white collar crime, if you will, Ponzi schemes, wire fraud, bank fraud, credit card fraud, you know, that requires sometimes um, access to things that, you know, you may not be able to access from the street. And so there are people in high level positions uh, and companies who take advantage of those situations. And most of those people um, back then and even now don't look like us. So we, we saw <coughs> a fair number of white collar crimes that had more, you know, white defendants as opposed to the street level crimes, the drug dealing, the gun offenses, uh, the carjackings, the bank robberies, those types of things. We saw a lot more um, African-American and Latino defendants. Right. But but did you ever witness where or experience, I should say, right, where those same people who are committing these crimes? Was there any discrimination used in prosecuting them? You know, I, I, can't, I can't say I've ever witnessed that. Um, I can't say I've ever witnessed. Does, does it make sense what I'm asking? Oh, yeah, it does. It does. It does. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I never experienced it because I don't think I've ever participated in a situation where discrimination was a factor um, or how somebody looked was a factor in how I move forward with the case. And I wasn't talking about you, per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking about other people that I work with. Yeah, yeah where um, you may have been like, what? Smack on the wrist, what? No, no nothing oh, comes to me. Yeah, that was yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the sentencing part of it is is interesting because a, a lot of the sentencing that's done particularly in the federal system, is pursuant to the federal sentencing guidelines. And so the prosecutor has some discretion, but not a lot, because the guidelines will guide the judge in how the sentence is imposed. But I can't think of an anomaly where I thought I was really taken aback by a sentence or a prosecution of a person or a company or anybody where I thought, wow, either that was too much or that was too light. Nothing really comes to mind um, that I could think of right now. And I'm really trying to be honest, but I really can't think of anything. And, you know, my experience as a prosecutor, you know, was a very positive one. And do I wish that I didn't see the number of African-American and Latino defendants coming through the system? Yes. 
and some of whom I knew. <laughs> that was another uh, crazy thing uh, about being about a that. prosecutor. <laughs> so um, I need to hear a story about that one. Come on, give me something so, good so, about that. I I was I was in the fraud unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, at the time, and we have these sessions, what they call proffers. And a proffer is when you call the defendant in and you say, basically, um, tell us everything, you know. And if you tell us everything, you know, we'll basically um, go light on you, if you will come clean. And so. I was walking past a conference room one day and I looked in the room and I saw a young lady I went to high school and college with. <laughs> so I'm like, is that who I think it is? And so I'm feeling like, I don't know if I want her to see me. I didn't know what to do. So I go to my colleague and I said, is that such and such? And they said, yeah, that's such and such. I was like, well, what is she doing in there? Well, she is a, a, a branch manager or something at a bank, and she was embezzling money. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, you know, and smart girl, you know, knew her. I guess she found herself in a tough circumstance. She had access and opportunity, and she started to take money. So I'm like, wow. And I felt... At that moment, Carl, it, it's it's I can't even explain how I felt at the time. There there was there was sort of a feeling of guilt, you know, on my part, and sorrow, you know, on on my part because I felt like, wow, here I am. I'm an assistant United States attorney. I'm 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 doing well, and I got a friend of mine who finds herself in a very difficult situation and I don't know what I can do to help her. You know, there, there's very little that I could do to, to help her. And so I think she, she cooperated. I think they went as light as they possibly could on her, but it was just one of those situations where I, I just kind of felt conflicted. The other one was, this was a big drug case. And one of my colleagues came to my office and he showed me pictures. And it was a guy. They were in a, in a red skin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so th 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 this was a case out of Patterson. And he comes to my office. He knows him from Patterson. He says, Vaughn, look at these pictures. And it was a kid that I grew up with from like, elementary school playing basketball with and here he is posing with a whole bunch of money in his hands with drugs and guns and all this stuff around and he was like do you know him I was like well do I know him I I more than know this kid I mean we we were ball buddies we grew up playing against each other he says well you know, he's about to go to federal prison for for a long time because of all of this stuff. And again, I just kind of found myself in a position where I felt, ow, you know, conflicted. You know, what could I do to help? How did how did how did he wind up in this place? What makes me so different? We all grew up together. How did he get on this path? How did I get in that path? 
And so you start to ask yourself all those questions and feel like, you know, what what could I have done or what could they have done to kind of change their lives around to not find themselves in that situation? So those are real moments for me where I felt conflicted and wasn't sure how to process it. And the last story I'll tell is I got involved in a case involving the prosecution of a a mayor and I was asked if I could review the file to help out with the discovery process. So I go upstairs, I go to the conference room, there's all these boxes in there and I started to look through the boxes and I'm like, I know this mayor. Not only do I know this mayor, his son and I are the best of friends. So I immediately... <laughs> So I immediately go to my supervisor and said, listen, I can't I can't get involved in this case. I mean, this guy used to come to my college dorm. He spent the night. We hung out together in high school. I said, I can't do it. I, I, I just can't do it. So, again, another situation where all of my worlds were colliding, you know, my 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 growing up. But but again, it goes back to what we talked about it. That all gave me perspective, Carl. It, it all gave me perspective that the the world is not black and white. There are all kinds of shades in there and and being able to kind of recognize that and know where your blind spots are and, and being confident enough to say, listen, I have a blind spot here. And so maybe I shouldn't. Maybe somebody else should take a look at this. You know, maybe I could give somebody else an opportunity to review this to make sure that I am not being biased or not approaching this with a different mindset. Let me ask you this. January 6th. <laughs> January 6th. Mm -hmm. Infamous insurrection. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, how should the government go about these potential threats moving forward, right? In my opinion, they are this country's terrorists and they're able to just blend in to everyday society, right? So how should we prepare or how should we go about dealing with these situations in the future? Well, I think the attorney general, you know, nominee Merrick Garland and the whole Justice Department will have to really understand and really kind of dissect what happened here and what went wrong. I mean, I think it starts with you really got to take a look at what what really happened here and what went wrong. And I do think from what I've seen so far. Wait, uh, wait, I'm sorry to cut you off. Oh, sure. I'm sorry to cut you off. We have to address the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Is 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 the, you know, if I, if I were to say it better or differently, <laughs> I, I would say we, you know, address what went wrong, right? Because we know what went wrong. So address the elephant, deal with it. Right. Confront what's what, what it is. Yep. As opposed to, you know, let's try and figure out. No, we know. We know. You know. Just address it. Not you. Yeah. I'm not. No, yeah, not I, I understand. You. No, yeah, right, 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 right. I'm not saying you. Right. But everybody but, knows. Yeah. And I think what happens in, in those situations where you have an agency you know, like the Justice Department and you have new leadership coming in, 
I think the first thing people want to do is to try to change a narrative. And like you said, do something about it. Now, this happened on January 6th. So we have a new administration. We have a new attorney general coming in. And I do think Merrick Garland is going to take a heavy hand to this and really try to prosecute those folks to the fullest extent of the law. But the, the, the real issue here is all of the animosity and, and the rhetoric that was spewed that kind of led these folks to kind of do what they did. And how do we get at that and deal with that situation and those groups because they continue to be a threat to our democracy? And I think everybody, you know, who have an ounce of decency was appalled by what happened on January 6th. And we all should have been appalled by that. I mean, that threat to democracy. And I want to be clear, we know, as you know, Carl, that not all white people are aligned to that kind of behavior. And so I think that we sometimes have to remind ourselves that those people don't represent all white people. Just like, you know, uh, people who consider black folks a threat don't represent all black people. And so we can't make the mistake of painting everybody with that broad brush because we don't want to paint it against us. I have white friends. You have white friends. We all have people who were appalled by that, not because they're white or black, but because they're human beings. And, and they didn't appreciate, you know, what happened in that insurrection and the threat to our American democracy and then what those people did. So I think that really coming out strong and aggressive against the perpetrators and really getting to the bottom of what happened here, like you said, we know it, but then making sure that we use the prosecutorial process to prosecute those folks to the full extent of the law and then try to really change the narrative in the country and hopefully you know, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris can help heal. We need healing, Carl. We, 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 this nation has been fractured and divided, you know, for the last four years. And we, we need to heal in a way that brings us together and really focuses on the humanity and dignity of every person, as opposed to the divisive uh, rhetoric that has torn us apart. And that doesn't mean that we have to uh, come together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But it does mean that we should respect the humanity in every individual and that we all should have an opportunity to live, to prosper, to have health care, uh, to be educated and to do what we believe we can do, given our God given abilities. And I think that's what's been missing, I think, for the last few years, where people on the margins have felt like they've been cut out of that whole process. And we got to figure out a way to bring that back and to help people and to give them hope. I would agree with you there. And I think that it should start from the top all the way down, though, not just the people who, who stormed the Capitol and that, you know, everyone who was involved, I mean, including uh, former President Trump. It should start from the top with regards to the prosecuting and, and the, the accountability. Absolutely. Uh, you know, because if, if I was in charge of, you know, a ship and the ship sank, they, you know, I was in charge of the ship. They, absolutely. You know I mean? 
Yeah, you're oh, the captain. I saw it was on fire, and I didn't say, hey, the ship is burning. Hello? Ship's burning. Well, all right, you know what? And someone tells me the ship is burning, and I go, well, yeah, you don't need no water for it. Is this setting precedence? Do you, is this setting precedence on how the government, as far as privilege and how government officials are being treated in these criminal cases? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think, you know, one four-year term necessarily sets a precedent. I think that given the makeup of the Senate right now with a 50-50 tie and it can be broken by the vice president and what's happening, I think, around the country in terms of, you know, some of the gains that the Democrats have made, obviously, down in Georgia, I do think that people are more aware of what's happening and some of the shifts that are occurring in the country. And I think people want to reverse some of the politics of the last four years and some of the, if you want to call it precedent for the last four years in terms of how high level politicians have behaved and been able to um, get around, you know, law enforcement or getting around being impeached uh, or being convicted or uh, found guilty in an impeachment trial, I don't think it's a precedent. I do think it's an anomaly. I really have faith uh, in uh, the American people. And they came out and they showed the faith that we should have in them in this last election. And I think that, you know, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have their work cut out for them. But I think the tone that they've set so far in the first few months, I think it's a good tone of healing, reconciliation, restoration, kind of getting rid of the rhetoric and understanding that they are the leaders for all people, you know, Democrats and Republicans. They have to lead the country. And so hopefully they will let partisan politics play lesser of a role in what they do. We can't be naive. We know partisan politics play a role. Everybody has a role to play, but hopefully they can can minimize the partisan politics and really do what's best, you know, for the country in terms of getting us back on track and getting rid of some of the divisive rhetoric and bringing people together rather than tearing them apart. I believe in unicorns. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that sounds great. It does. So, it does. It I, sounds, I, I, you know, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm an optimist by heart. I mean, I, I, I just, I can tell. I, I, I because it's, it's, it's much, it's much, it's much easier, obviously, to think of the negative and the negative narrative, um, and it takes a lot more energy, I think, to really try to change the narrative and become more positive. Am, am I happy about everything that happens in the system? No, no, I'm not. Uh, but I'm trying to do my part. Um, in, in, in everyday life to help bring about the change that obviously, you know, we all want to see. And at this point, what choices do we have other than to exercise the power of the ballot and the power of the vote that we have and to lead our lives every day in the way that brings about the change that we want to see? And the first person that we lead is ourselves. And so if I'm leading myself and I'm leading my family, that I'm leading my community, and then I'm leading, you know, the greater community. It, it all starts there. And a lot of the, the, the things that we are concerned about, yes, they are influenced at a federal level, 
But I can tell you a lot of change that needs to take place needs to take place at the local level. Um, and local government, I think, touches people's lives on an everyday basis more than the federal government. And sometimes I think we lose sight and we focus on the federal picture when right in our own neighborhoods, you know, we need to deal with, you know, the housing issues and the crime issues and the access to education issues and the medical issues. I mean, those things are happening on a local level every day. And and so I think we, we can't lose sight that we have to also really get involved in our local politics because that's where the change begins to happen. All politics are local. And yes, there are federal policies that impact our lives, but I can tell you the local policies impact their lives more than some of the federal policies do on a daily basis. One more thing before we wrap this up, because uh, I want to stay on this. Um, you were talking about policy and a lot of these changes. I mean, is it just through policy, though? No, I think it, I, I think it's policy. I think it's advocacy. Should some laws be rescinded altogether, though? Like what? Um, give me an example. I mean, if, if I it's mean, a bad... Because I'm sorry. Okay, so so to give you an example, like basically a lot of these, I mean, if we're just talking about systemic racism, for example, mm -hmm. right, and how a lot of you know, which which is more than evident, more than evident that right. it's, it's it exists, right, in 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 every fiber, damn near. So that's what I mean. Like, should some laws uh, that were not even you know, when they were made, obviously we weren't in mind. Contemplated. They didn't have, you know what I mean? They didn't have us uh, in mind, you know, so should some laws be rescinded altogether? Like, you know what I'm saying? I do. And I think it's all a matter of strategy, right? What, 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 what strategy do we as a people need to implement and execute on in order to build a, a better life for our communities and our children. And I think there was a time in our country and in our nation where black people spoke with a unified voice. And, and you had unifying leaders who were able to articulate in a very clear fashion the concerns of black people. And you kind of had like these mini messiahs, if you will, in the community that really galvanized the community. And in many ways, then we watched what happened to as, right, as messiahs, right, know, right. <laughs> they, they're so. they're gone, you know. You know, as Gil Scott Heron would say, they've been killed, right, and sent away. So I think, in many ways. The, the black community is not as monolithic as it once was, where you had these unifying voices that articulated the concerns of black people, partly because a lot of black folks now are the beneficiaries of the movement in terms of black executives, blacks in law enforcement, blacks in any industry that you can name a lot of that happened as a result of what was going on in the 60s in terms of affirmative action and other gains in the workplace that allowed black people 
to partake. And so now I think one of the things that's missing from a community as a whole is that genuine and authentic hunger for the community and uplifting of the entire race of black people in a way that was once prevalent in the 40s, 50s, and even going back, you know, through Jim Crow, Jane Crow, through slavery, there was a there was an authentic hunger and thirst for the vindication of rights of black people. And I think in many ways, a lot of us have been pacified. We've been pacified. And, and so that's made us a little complacent because I got mine, you got yours, my family's okay. So what else is there to fight for? And a lot of people won't admit that, but I've had conversations and I also have to challenge myself and ask myself every day, what, what more can I do as a black man in America to help people who are coming behind me? And so I look at my life and what I do, and it's really all geared around, you know, helping people to try to better our community, to uplift our community. But we have a hard task in front of us, Carl, as you know, because it's a two-way street. You have to want to be helped and you have to exert energy and do things that empower yourself to be helped. And unfortunately, many of our folks find ourselves in a situation where they're apathetic and, and they're resigned to the fact that this is the way it is. You know, I'm okay with, with living in public housing for three generations. I'm, I'm okay with that. And, you know, I'm okay with just going to high school and graduating and not pursuing a trade or going to college. I'm okay with that. I'm okay, you know, with just working a job that has no advancement because I don't really want to be held accountable. And that's not everyone. But my point is that there, there are enough folks out there that have that attitude, which makes it very difficult for um, a lot of us who are pushing and prodding and, and trying to help folks, you know, think better of themselves and to kind of reach for more. Because, as you know, we, we live in a knowledge based economy. And if you don't know something, it's going to be hard for you to survive in this economy. And, and access to education, access to health care, access to housing, access to all of those things are totally dependent upon what skills do you have? How can you earn money? How can you ply yourself and ply your trade in order to earn money for you and your family? And, and I watch it, and those are hard things to, to, to deal with. I used to go into the juvenile facilities to talk about uh, my book and, and to you know, meet with young men and just to kind of hear their stories about how they got there and how they had to really grow up fast and how they had to sell drugs in order to put food on the table. Those are real issues that, that we have to deal with in, in our communities and, and, and why they needed to drop out of school because they had to care for their little brother because their mother or father you know, wasn't there. And so it, it really made me understand that everybody, Carl, who's poor doesn't want to be poor. Everybody who's poor is not lazy. 
you know, everybody who's poor, you know, is is not um, resigned to the fact that they will always be life and circumstances just kind of descended upon them. And they found themselves in a situation where it was overwhelming. And as a result of that, they 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 didn't have the buffers and the barriers to withstand that. And then they found themselves in a very difficult situation. So so I'm saying that, you know, what we need to do as a community um, is to encourage our kids, you know, and encourage our teachers and encourage those who 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 mold those young people to inspire them and to convince them that, yes, you can do it. And to go back and do the career day so that they can see people like Vaughn McCoy and Carl Payne and others who who can say, hey, you know what? This kid came to my class and I was in the fifth grade and he inspired me. So th- this is a multifaceted problem that's going to take a multi-pronged approach to fix. And it seems overwhelming when we talk about it. And that's why, Carl, I focus on what I can do. Because if I don't focus on what I can do, then it's overwhelming and then nothing gets done. And so I just focus on what I can do. And if I do what I can do, that hopefully will motivate other people to do what they can do. And then together, you know, we'll see progress, you know, as a whole over time, because it's going to take time. I'm under no illusion. And and it may not be my lifetime or yours. It's going to take time (laughs) for us to 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 really get through this. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm looking, you know, and I said in a timely manner. Right. And what does that mean? Timely manner. Right. 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 (laughs) That's all uh, suggestive and, and, you know, perspective. But you're right. I I agree with, uh, you know, I agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, and as we stated earlier, how important it is, you know, the images through music and, you know, the images that we, 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 we are given on television and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and even in our community, you know, this is the, these are the things. And I think that's what happened, as you said, in the past, what, what, what inspired you and what inspired many people were the images that they were being shown and given, you know, the, the, the music was the movement. Yes. You know, from James Brown to uh, Marvin Gaye to a lot of our, our, you know, black superheroes, you know, that inspired us to to join that movement. You sure. Know? Um, and, and I was going to ask for your final thoughts, but you, you, you said everything perfectly, you know, that that I would uh, expound upon, you know, as we pursue progress and progression as a nation in this movement for equality. I think it's important that we continue to dialogue you yes. know, on how to, how to elevate our methods and approaches. I mean, and, and that's one of the reasons why this this pro program or this platform exists. Right. Because it seems that, you know, obviously we're still facing a lot of the problems that we've had, you know, even, you know, from the civil, you know, a lot of the battles, a lot of the same battles. You know, sure. Civil rights era and before. And, you know, and a lot of the times I know it feels like it's it's a continuous cycle with not enough resolution for our efforts that are being made. So we have to continue to, to, to have these dialogues so that we can figure out new approaches and, and form new alliances mm-hmm. that will provide continued support. And I think through this, it will help not only our nation to heal because it would help the nation to right its wrongs. Correct. And to the, you know, to the people of this country. So, That's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's real. That's real good. <laughs> no, that, that's you know, real good. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining us, Vaughn. Thank you. No, no, thank no, you. thank you, Carl. This is a great discussion. Appreciate it. Yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, man. Uh, man, you shed some. You shed some really. Uh, I like the light. I like the light that you shed today, man. And I, and I appreciate you, you for coming on our show and 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 sharing with us. And I, I'm, I have hope that there are more out out there just like you in the thank positions you, that you're making a difference. That's it. That's what we do. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.